This week on The Futurists. One thing the Jetsons didn't really do was tackle the whole economic side of this. You know, you don't see poverty in the Jetsons. And, you know, we assume that is sort of in a post-scarcity abundance society. Um, And a lot of the work that George was doing was very technical related. I mean, okay, he was pushing buttons, but his company, was it Mr. Cogswell or whatever it was his boss? I can't remember. Um, But um, that that company was working on technology for the world. Um, And so... I think, you know, more and more companies are going to obviously have that um, focus. If you grew up like Rob and I did watching cartoons on Saturdays, you probably already know the show we're going to talk about on this episode. In fact, uh, July 31st of this year was the fictional birth date of George Jetson from the Jetsons. And we thought it'd be interesting to take a bit of a dive into what the Jetsons predicted and uh, you know what it's mean for society, what they got right, what they got wrong, and um, you know what it potentially means for society in the future, given the Jetsons was talking about a time 20 or 30 years from now and how the Jetsons may yet still predict some of the things that we have coming. Rob, do you, do you remember the Jetsons growing up as a kid? Who could not remember the Jetsons? The Jetsons and the Flintstones were foundational concepts in media literacy when I was a kid. Yeah, they were on the air constantly. Uh, We were bombarded with cartoons, those cartoons and many others, of course. But those were really, really relevant, I think, compared to some of the other things like, you know, Looney Tunes cartoons with Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd and so on. Uh, For some reason, the Hanna-Barbera cartoons really resonated with our generation. And apparently they continue to resonate with people. You know, the funny thing about the Jetsons is they only made one season. They made 22 shows. And uh, it wasn't even considered necessarily a successful show when they produced it. So it's a little bit like Star Trek in that way. You know, this show was introduced. um, It ended up having a lasting impact. But at the time, it was kind of like, yeah, you know, just another show. Um, One of the reasons it didn't didn't last, or, you know, the the first season um, was the only season that they produced initially, was because... It was produced in color. And you have to go back to 1962 and realize that most households didn't have color TVs. In fact, most households didn't have color TVs until 1970. Uh, So very few people could see it in color. And that show in black and white, I imagine, would not be nearly as fun to watch. Uh, So they were very futuristic, I suppose. The two producers, Hanna-Barbera, when they produced it, they, um, they, they had vision about the future of television. And in a way, helped bring that one to life. So, Brett, how well, did they I, arrive at 100 I, years? How did they arrive at George Jetson's birthday? How did they figure that out? Do you have any insight? I, I yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I did a little bit of research um, before the show. I, I don't know why they chose that date. But you know what? It, it always, you know, when I was growing up in the, you know, like the 70s and 80s, the 2020s were the future right? It wasn't 2000. <laughs> it was like 2020 is, is what we defined right. as the future, you know? So um, here we are in the future. Um, yeah. How does it feel? <laughs> You're here now. <laughs> exactly. But I, I did find out something interesting. Um, the Jetsons, of course, resided in Orbit City, it was called. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about orbital cities now and so forth. We had Rosie the robot and so forth. But the city's architecture was rendered in what we call the Googie style. Have you ever heard of this? Yeah. That's huge. So, I live in LA, man. It's everywhere here. Yes. 
Of course. Um, so, um, you know, it's not the Google style, let's be clear, it's the Googie style, but this is the style of architecture that sort of influenced the way we thought about the future in the 60s and so forth. So um, uh, everywhere you drive in LA, you see houses cool. on stilts with, with the groovy uh, the groovy signature style um, names on them. And, uh, and, the, and the garages, the parking garages are underneath. So that idea of a house on stilts is uh, is the inspiration. I mean, I imagine that the the producers would drive past houses like that all the time when they're on their way to work in L.A. And they decided then to uh, to make that the theme, the visual theme for the show. It's like just make the stilts taller, make the buildings higher. So let's talk about some of the things they predicted that, um, you know, have uh, impacted our day-to-day life uh, these days. Of course, the most obvious one, I think, probably be would be the video phone. Now, the sure. video... I, w- I thought you were going to say the robot, the flying car. Come on. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, flying cars and Rosie the robot. We're going to definitely get into that, um, you know, the sort of humanoid personification of androids, right? But um, if you think about the video phones, that was the majority of their communication. Now, in the 1960s, that was pretty out there. You know, we had Dick Tracy, you know, which which was a concept earlier than the Jetsons, of course. But in the Jetsons, they took it to a new level. They had um, tele tele schooling, you know, um, part of the schooling was done on video. They had flat screen TVs and they had smart watches, which you could do video calls from as well. So yes. all of that was fairly advanced thinking. Yeah, in one episode, even uh, Elroy, the boy Elroy, is watching the Flintstones on his wristwatch, which at the time seems super futuristic. And today, it's like, yeah, so what? You can everyone can TikTok. do that now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and of course, you mentioned Rosie the robot. Um, so Rosie helped the kids with the homework. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you know, we do have some robots that uh, are learning assistance robots now. Um, like, um, oh, I'm just trying to think of the name of of um, the one. I, I can't think of it right now, but I'll I'll, I'll think of it as we go. Um, but of course, um, the other aspect is Rosie did a lot of the household chores. And yeah. we don't have ro- robots that walk around, but we do have robots that vacuum and mop the floors today. Roomba, such as Roomba. yeah, yeah, for you sure. And, and people keep telling me uh, they keep getting better and better. Those Roomba robots. They were a bit of a joke a few years ago, but now it's like a real thing. No, um, you know, I, I think. Uh, Obviously, as time-saving devices go, you know, you can even get them mowing the lawn now, cleaning the pool. Um, You know, there's variations on it. Um, But the big thing is, you know, obviously, you know, vacuuming the floors, you can just leave this thing to go. It is a big time-saving device. But it was sort of that push-button society that was embedded in the whole Jetsons world. So, And speaking of push-buttons, that's what George did for a living. His job was to push buttons at a factory, right? So uh, in, in every episode, you'll see them pushing buttons. You know, when they want to make a meal, a little screen magically appears and they can select what meal they want to make. Or, you know, if it's time for Elroy to go to school, the mother can select food printers. Yeah. She can, yeah. And they can select the destination and those pneumatic tubes. Uh, you know, some of it is a bit of a joke, like uh, the pneumatic tubes that transport people up and down right. and elevators. That was a throwback to department stores in the 1920s, 1930s right. that had those pneumatic tubes, but they thought it was cool and they were like, let's. Bring that back for the future. That'll be the way we transport people into. In well, we could have vacuum trains like, you know, Hyperloop and things like that. So, yeah. you know, if you wanted to extend that concept. But I'll, I'll give you a quote from, from one of the episodes I watched in preparation for this from George Jensen. At, at work, he said, boy, 
these three-hour days are killing me. <laughs> now, um, if if you know his work um, pattern, his work consisted of an hour a day, two days a week. Now, this at the time, and even today, seems a little bit ridiculous, but in highly automated societies that we're going to see develop over the next 20 to 30 years, we know that artificial intelligence is going to have a massive, massive impact on employment. So it may be that we end up uh, working uh, you know, far less hours than we do today or having something like universal basic income because we've been replaced by artificial intelligence. What do you think? I think this is a moment for some humility as a futurist because futurists have been making this prediction for more than 100 years. Oh, as we automate more and more stuff in society, people will be working fewer hours. We'll have more time for leisure. We'll all be artists. You know what, Brett? Here it is in 2022. We're no closer to that vision than we Working were. Working harder than ever, ago. dude. <laughs> yeah. No, but having said that, I mean, if you look at the structural elements of employment, um, you know, the right now, the sort of supply and demand curve argument, this is what I wrote about in Rise of Technosocialism, is the likelihood is that you know, we'll replace more and more humans with AI anywhere there's process, you know, processes that can be repetitive. You know, you can get algorithms or robotics into there. Um, and that means that essentially, you know, the demand curve that we talk about in terms of um, meeting that from a supply perspective, we've got less and less human labor dependence there because we're using more processing cycles. But it doesn't mean we won't work. And I don't, I think, um, you know, this is where the key argument comes from AI disrupting employment. People are like, people need work. They, they need purpose in their life. Um, but what the UBI trials are telling us is that people start their own jobs at a much higher frequency on UBI than the general population. People get much more involved in community and social activities at a much higher rate with UBI. And don't forget, you know, we are going to have a big, you know, a, a huge demand on labour for climate mitigation in, um, you know, particularly from the 2040s onwards. Yeah. That's going to require a lot of human involvement. So, I th yeah. just think the role of work in society is going to change. Not that automation is going to be the end of work, and we're all going to become artists. Although you've already, you're already an artist, so you've already yeah, got so a, a, a foot I'm up. I'm also, there. Have, I'm all ready for that future. I just want the uh, the end of work part to start. <laughs> The, the, the thing about the, the UBI, though, liberating people from dependency on work and particularly dependency on physical labor, uh, I think that's a really promising vision, right? So you say, gosh, yeah, we can automate more and more things. Robots, you know, robotic systems, automated systems can produce more and more uh, parts, more and more finished products, and even transport them. Uh, so many of the physical tasks in industrial society and in advanced manufacturing are going to be automated. I think that's a safe bet. I don't think that's like a huge prediction or a gigantic leap. We can see that happening. So then the question is like, where, where do the humans find purpose? Where do the humans migrate to? Well, there's a great deal of opportunity for humans to invent new things. And um, if many folks who are big, big bulls, you know, big believers in this robotic future, uh, they say, look, humans have never ceased to find new needs, to invent new wants and new desires. Right. And I think that's a really useful way to look at this robotic future. It's like, okay, what gifts have you got? What skills have you got to invent things that people will desire? And as there's a surplus of human labor and human imagination available, we'll probably start to do more imaginative things, I would imagine. You know, more things that require human imagination, 
more novel mashups, more creative, yeah, maybe more handmade stuff. You know, as more and more uh, as more and more things are produced on, and automated, that that will drop in value, and the perceived value will go away as well. It won't seem so scarce or rare. Uh, so highly polished, manufactured things that almost are perfect. That's what you'll get from a robot. Um, we'll turn to humans for wabi-sabi, you know, that kind of like flawed artifact, uh, the handmade the detail that lets you know that a human, human being did it. And that's a great creative pursuit. So listen, if that's the future we're aiming for, where we're all potters and knitters and gardeners, I, I'm op open to that idea. I think that could be great fun. One thing the Jetsons didn't really do was tackle the whole economic side of this. You know, you don't right. see poverty in the Jetsons. And, you know, we assume that is sort of in a post-scarcity abundance society. Um, and a lot of the work that George was doing was very technical related. I mean, okay, he was pushing buttons, but his company, was it Mr. Cogswell or whatever it was his yeah. boss? I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but um, that, that company was working on technology for the world. Um, and so... I think, you know, more and more companies are going to obviously have that um, focus, but it's sort of really the question of economics in highly automated societies is a good one because if so much of society and resource allocation is highly automated, um, not only where do humans add value, but how do, how does economics work when so much of what we have is just immediately available, like the food printer? you know, as an example, or, um, yeah. you know, like, you know, when, when she was doing the grooming for the kids and things like that, you know, she, her hairstyle could be changed by the machine or the toothbrush, uh, um, you know, robot hand that came out and things like that. But all of this time saving and all of this automation, um, you know, creates a society where so much of our daily needs are met by that high level of automation. What need do you have for money? If, all of your basic needs are catered for. If you've got a 3D food printer that can spit out food and you've got a 3D printed home that you can live in, homelessness doesn't it doesn't exist and you've got these well, sensors on the uh, not so fast. your healthcare and hang on, hang on, hang on. So a closer look at the show will reveal that actually they airbrushed an awful lot out of that story. So one of the things to pay attention to when you look at old forecasts for the future, including cartoons like the Jetsons, is what's missing? What didn't they think about? What were some of the things that were happening in society right then when they were making that story that they left out or they neglected? One thing you won't see in the Jetsons is black people or people of color. Right. Uh, so, you know, this is, in, this is a show that was created in 1961, 1962. There were race riots in the United States. The, the civil rights movement was in full swing. And just a few, few years later, the Civil Rights Act would be passed in the United States. So this is a very present part of American society at the time, uh, but it was airbrushed right out of the story. And with respect to that vision of abundance, Brett, I'm sorry, but I got to chime in. I hate to be the downer here in this story, but apparently that's the way it's playing out today. So there is an episode. <laughs> there's an episode of the Jetsons called The Spacesuit, uh, where uh, where George's boss and their big rival competitive firm are trying to develop a flying suit. And one of them drops to the ground. Now, you never see the ground in the show. You actually see it a couple of times, but only a couple of times. But it raises, a, it raises a pretty interesting question. Like, well, Orbit City, where actually is Orbit City? It's in the sky. Who lives and on the, the ground? All the buildings are right? built yeah. on these, uh, you know, pylons or towers, or uh, you know, they're up in the, they're they're raised up on pillars. Well, the spacesuit falls to the ground, and guess what? It lands on a homeless person. It lands on a hobo, and so it turns uh, out that there is a guy uh, walking around on the ground, and it's actually interesting. He's walking around like a park. It's like a green park. 
Um, but he has holes in his shoes and his clothes are ratty and torn up and so on. So he's quite clearly what we would call a homeless person today. And so the, the, the economic story that's implied there is a little darker than what you're su suggesting, because what it says is that there is abundance in this world of the Jetsons, but it's abundance for the rich people who have jobs, who live in Orbit City, and then the poor people who don't have good shoes, who are homeless, they live on the ground, on the planet Earth. Um, now, when they went back to redo the show in the 1980s, when uh, Ted Turner's uh, Turner Broadcasting controlled that library, uh, they bought they bought a Hanna Barbera, and they they brought the show back, and they made more episodes. And and um, unfortunately, just like the the modern episodes of the Looney Tunes, they're not as good as the original series. They're not as wacky. Yeah. Um, and they started to play up this theory. Uh, they 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 emphasized this notion a little bit in subsequent episodes, where you know the Earth uh, had been spoiled, the the environment was spoiled. That's why they had to live in in uh, these these tower cities and sky and so forth. That's a little bit of a, a, a 1980s addition to this show. Might not have been necessary. But what they did is they underscored something that was baked into the first series, which is this notion that there are the people who have good things and they've got abundance and flying cars and they live in this great city. And there are people who do not. And that's sort of the Elysium you know, vision as well, if you see that you got uh, it. Matt Damon movie, right? That movie is the Jetsons. I mean, it's, it's, it's the like Jetsons, the, yeah. the dark perspective. It's the worm's eye view, like the person on the ground who's trying to get up to that beautiful planet in the sky, the, the city in the sky. That's exactly what Elysium is. Elysium is basically a high-tech version of the Jetsons. And and that's one of the flip sides, potentially, of UBI. You know, if you've seen um, the uh, Expanse universe, I don't know if you've ever watched the Expanse sci-fi. Mm -hmm. In the Expanse, you have two classes of people. You have those that are part of the elite class, um, you know, and this is on Earth, you know, because you have the Belters and others, people, you know, the Martians and so forth living, living outside of the Earth. But on the Earth, you have two classes of people. You have the wealthier elite and you have the basics those are on basic and you know um so it creates a stratification of human mm -hmm. society because yes you have all of your needs looked after from a basic income perspective you don't go hungry you have a roof over your head you have clothes access to you know healthcare and education but that's it you know you don't have the wealth and abundance of the the wealthy elite class those are you know involved in governments or own own the technologies and uh, corporations that create like genetic engineering and AI and all of those sorts of things. And that that is highly probable outcome of highly yeah. tech, highly automated societies, unless we figure out a way for better wealth distribution. Because the way we think of wealth distribution today is as the economy grows, we get better paying jobs. And so if right. those jobs don't exist, um, you know, and we've got UBI, then that ability to have uh, social mobility is, uh, you know, a problem. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, listen, I, yeah, I could go deep on, on UBI. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptic personally. Um, I think that I, I think it's a dangerous thing for people to be dependent on a handout for for their income. But, but it seems but like people what are social safety net do you have if if AI takes jobs? You know, you've got to have something. So this well, is a philosophical yeah, debate. You know, this good. is a philosophical debate we're going to have. Let's just think about truck drivers affected by, you know, autonomous vehicles. Um, now, you know, Andrew Yang has made this point and, you know, I, you know, I don't, you know, depending on where you sit on the 
political spectrum. But he said, you know, like we talk about retraining truck drivers as coders, but how realistic is that? You know, when you look at coal miners and others who've been displaced because of uh, changes, you know, the reality is it's not very realistic. So right. you can't just leave them to be without income. You know, you have to provide some level of support. So it, depending on how large scale technology unemployment is, you know, that's where we talk, start talking about solutions like UBI. And of course, Zuckerberg, uh, you know, Musk, um, you know, uh, Mark Cuban, all of these guys, um, you know, Peter Thiel, all of them talk about UBI as a fairly, um, you know, uh, logical outcome of, of technology based on employment. Well, of course they do. Of course they do. They're billionaires. I mean, come on, this is a billionaire's right. approach to dealing with people who are displaced right. by their technology, right? They, they exactly. say, oh, let's just figure out some scheme to pay those people. They haven't really put themselves in the position of a person to be on the receiving end of that. So think about the person who's receiving UBI. Where, where's the agency there? Where is their ability to determine their outcome? You're getting a handout every single month. Yes. It's a fixed income. Uh, that does not sound, like, for personally, to me, like a very appealing outcome. It sounds like a scheme where they foster huge dependency on a yes. government that hands out things. And then there's another gr group, as you point out, we can't get away from this notion of class. There's one class that reaps all the benefit and all the rewards. Okay, enough on that topic. Here's another thing that's missing from the Jetsons, which is an interesting thing. If you think about it, 1962, the other thing that was going on was the beginning of the, of the Vietnam War. And right. the Bay of Pigs invasion in, in uh, Cuba and the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we had the Cold, Cold War in full swing. And in Massive some cases, it was a shooting war. And um, now, of course, you wouldn't expect to see that in the children's cartoon. But there is an episode where George gets drafted by the military. And so this oh. was on the periphery. People I didn't remember that one either. Even a kid's cartoon would be aware of this uh, of this dynamic that there were people who were being drafted and sent away to some war far away in another part of the world. What was that about? Why um, didn't they forget have robots doing all the war? <laughs> well, you know, with respect to the robots, there's quite a lot. You know, it's not just uh, the fact that there's Rosie the robot in the house. Uh, at one point, they had Rosie, the drones. Rosie falls in love with another robot, and right. uh, the robot, uh, the 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 superintendent of their building, sends his robot away for repair and. Rosie's pining for that. And in another episode, Rosie thinks that they're going to replace her because she's kind of an old model robot. And so she's she's concerned that that she's going to be replaced. Uh, and so she she goes away. She runs away from home. A robot run away. Um, now, this notion is a, is about effective computing, uh, computers that have emotions and computers that can sense our emotions and maybe even predict and anticipate our emotions. Well, that's a highfalutin way of describing a kid's cartoon. That's clearly the intent that they had with those episodes where Rosie's exactly. feeling things and understanding the way people feel. This is a huge topic in computing. And it's one of those topics that is like sort of permanent dawn in the sense that the sun never fully rises on effective computing, where computers yeah. can discern how we feel and how we're responding. Uh, today, when you call a call center and you're on hold for 25 minutes or you're navigating through voicemail hell, a series of menus trying to find the person who can answer your problem, they actually have effective computing systems listening to your voice tone and they can tell whether or not you're getting angry. Uh, so people don't realize this, but it quietly and invisibly, this kind of effective computing is starting to enter our world uh, and into our experience, unfortunately, in the worst possible way uh, through call centers. Um, but nevertheless, people have that experience today. So we might not notice it. We might not be aware that there's an AI listening to us when we're on the phone on hold. 
or uh, calling a call center. Uh, but we are being monitored right now by effective computing. So that's another one that the Jets. Uh, yeah, I read, a, I read a Google research article on that um, recently, actually. And um, like you said, it's the, the sort of uh, emerging dawn thing. Um, the reality is that we haven't really still cracked that, particularly no. in terms of uh, facial recognition with emotions. Yeah. It's it, it turns out, you know, you can be smiling and you can be upset. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, there, there's uh, there, there's other cues, micro expressions and things like that. Um, I did want to get into the whole robot um, play in this because um, obviously, um, you know, the way we have thought about robots in science fiction generally, um, an android is a very common form of robotics we see dis displayed in science fiction. So, of course, you had, uh, um, you know, um, the you know, Forbidden Planet. You had, um, um, you know, the the robot from uh, Lost in Space. Um, you had Hell Nine Thousand, Lieutenant Commander Data. You had Metropolis. You know, all, all of all, all of these movies portrayed uh, robot um, or human-like robots. Now, oh, um, the point. word yes. robot itself comes from the Czech word roboti, mm -hmm. which uh, came comes from a play that you know, um, or the the first use in 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 fiction there was in 1921 with Rossum's Universal Robots. Yeah. Um, of course, that was in Czech, and they presented the robots as these electronic servants. Um, yeah. And if you go back a bit further, you had the Steam Machine Man of the Prairies, which was 1877, I think, in terms of um, you know these penny penny novels that were were written in, in you know in in the states. Um, and this was a steam steam machine-based uh, man that would um, be able to pull, um, you know, carts around instead of horses. But, um, you know, we have got this common theme of robots being servants for us mm -hmm. and them being in this android form. In fact, the, the Czech word robotic literally means a serf, a, a, you know, a, a uh -huh. indentured servant, right? Um, and so this is, again, something that, you know, we are going to, you know, we, we hear talk about robots' rights and things like that. The Jetsons definitely sort of dealt with that a little, little bit in respect to robot personalities and so forth. But, you know, if we do get sentient, sentient machines, which seems fairly likely, you know, what sort of rights they have and the respect for other intelligences um, that we have to share um, the planet with, you are starting to see some awareness creep in, you know, the, the fact that um, octopuses um, demonstrate uh, forms of intelligence, that, um, you know, dolphins have complex uh, speech patterns and so forth. Mm. And yet, you know, we consider them food today. So um, it's interesting to see how the emergence of an alternative intelligence in the form of AI might change the way we think about species that we coexist with, whether they are AI, you know, machine-based species, or whether they're the existing species we have. Uh, it's not I something Jetson's so, really dealt with, you know? So if we can create an intelligence that we consider sentient, which by the way, some people already think we've done, they're wrong, but nevertheless, they think that we've created a sentient robot. So maybe we're on the brink. Maybe we're knocking on that door, and then what you're 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 assuming or you're proposing that that might cause us to value other kinds of sentient creatures, other life forms like octopuses, uh, dolphins. Um, we might we might value them even more uh, if we're able to create it. I sure hope that's the case. I wonder if that'll be true. Um, my big wonder is if we create sentient robots, what are they going to think about us? Yeah, and why would they care about us? 
Well, you know, I, I, you know, a, we're the creators. B, you know, they have to coexist with us. Um, you know, unless they're they're skydiving. Those, um, <laughs> those are two pretty big. Those are pretty big yeah, assumptions. Yeah. The first thing that the robots are going to do is make better ones, right? Then they'll be the creators. Yeah. And with respect to us, like, do they have to share the planet with us? We're profligate. Well, could, we're wasteful. We're, they we can't could, manage our affairs. Could, yeah. We, we, we create pollution. Like we're we're incredibly inefficient. We're maybe the most sophisticated biological organism on planet Earth. But I think a new form of life that's not biological in origin might look at us and say, what an inefficient process. Let's just get rid of all these things. That'll solve the problems entirely. <laughs> well, the the other thing is that when we think about robots and how they might interact with us is mm-hmm. we're often thinking about how super powerful humans with high order intelligence would respond. And it's, you know, the absolute power corrupts absolutely concept. Yeah. But, you know, we've got no guarantee that robots with, you know, higher intelligence than us may think like humans, of course, they could think much more differently from, they could be pure logic machines. They could think very differently from humans. So we, when we, we can't think assume about they're the going to be sentimental, like right. it, it's a gigantic blunder yeah, to true. assume they're going to be sentimental about us. I think they're going to look at us with some measure of disgust. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, thanks for that upbeat uh, assessment. I know, there, I know you're getting me out of day. It's like, it's like we're talking about the what, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Dude? No, it's all right. It's the, all right. The, the other thing I noticed, I was looking at the Jets and thinking about today's show is how many things didn't change? Uh, how many things were in the show that were right. buried in the program every single week? There's an episode where they, they go to a football game or you know, George is playing right. golf with his boss or there's um, you know, there's a, there's a Space Cubs, which is like the Boy Scouts, you know, where the son Elroy is, a, is there. There's car dealers and bank robbers. All this You're stuff right. seems like artifacts yeah. from a bygone era of like, oh, wow, these are, these are kind of the TV tropes. There was no internet either. Not in the way we think of it. There was obviously automated systems and, um, you know, you could select from menus for food and, and things like that. But, um, you know, and there was, but it was more TV-like in terms of the way they portrayed. Yeah, the, everything uh, was TV. Yeah, and TV yeah. is a big part. TV is in every episode. TV is the central thing that the family does. You know, you, you we talk about this w- wonderful time when people won't have to work. Well, in the Jetsons, you know, George is the only one who works. He only works three hours a day yeah. or three hours a week. Yeah, or something. exactly. And so what do they do with all their spare time? Well, they watch a lot of television is what they do. That's that's one of the main things that the family does. And TV- It's going to be the metaverse though, by the time um, you know, we're in they, George Jetson land. Right. So they uh, they spend a lot of time on TV. The, the, the Elroy wins a TV contest in one show. In another, in another episode, uh, both Judy, the daughter, and Elroy uh, have a TV career. And George has to quit his job to go manage their career. And so television is a big role. Uh, the other thing I noticed in looking at it about things that never changed or changed slowly or retrograde in that show is the role of women. And um, this is really extraordinary. First of all, the idea that women would have jobs in 1962 in this TV show, it was supposed to be about 100 years in the future. That idea yeah. doesn't exist. Like, like women yeah, don't have yeah, roles exactly. outside of the home. Even in the opening trailer, the opening credits, uh, George is dropping everyone off at school, and then uh, his wife uh, Jane, he offers to give her a, like a twenty dollar bill, and she takes the whole wallet. So she takes his wallet and then goes to the shopping center. Right. Yeah, and yeah. then many episodes, George is at work dreaming about when he gets home. He'll have a nice uh, cooked meal. His wife will cook his meal and massage his feet, and so on. And it's like, wait a minute, what kind of gender roles are are we pro- propagating here? 
for you know a time that's theoretically 100 years in the future there's even beauty contests uh in the show so like we have a lot of retrograde stuff and she gets stressed out about answering the video phone when her hair's a mess you know and and things like that so yeah it's it it was a very 1960s uh, view of uh gender roles and so forth and of course that way we we made a certain amount of transgender people or that's right exactly that's right so so we have made progress in that respect that's exactly what I'm thinking is that society continues to move ahead in a fitful way. You know, it, st- it starts and stops, uh, but it does lurch ahead. And sometimes there's genuine progress that's made. I, you would never, you would never write a story like that today. You would never make a TV show where the gender roles are so unequal. Um, if anything today, you'd probably talk about how families are juggling jobs and fa- and, and family time and, you know, their own individual pursuits and, and running out of time. That would be a more reflect, re- accurate reflection. Probably not a fun TV show. But that, but that, you know, that, that's an interesting point you make because, um, you know, even right now, while we have, you know, big debate in the United States, for example, on abortion and transgender, um, you know, LGBTQ movement and so forth. Um, and, you know, it feels to some extent like we're, we're you know, we're reverting back on some of those social issues. But if you look at the broader progress humanity makes, this is the point that Brad Templeton made in that other episode we had is that generally speaking, you know, the 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 stewards who look back in history at these things, um, they lose out because technology also requires us to philosophically evolve as a species and um you know we have we have seen that in terms of as you mentioned the civil rights movement and other things we are you know we've got more progress to make on that front but we have made tremendous progress which is laudable yeah i think that's worth Um, considering and just in terms of the general gender roles remember 1962 is the year when Marilyn Monroe sang that very famous and sultry serenade Happy to President birthday, John Kennedy. Mr. President. That's right. Yeah. Uh, just a few months before she died. And, and there was I think, scandalous at the time. Uh, it was rumored that she was having an affair with the president. Uh, and so there were, that's kind of like... Who a, wasn't having an affair with JFK? I, I mean, uh, <laughs> today, this stuff would be like explosive, right? You would never know. It would be intolerable and it would be in the front page. Yeah. Uh, back in the day, it was kind of wink, wink, nod. Um, so, so that's a little bit of like a historical perspective. And I guess, yeah, you're right. It shows us that we make a kind of progress. Maybe it's lurching and uneven progress. Uh, you know, in the United States, people today feel stagnated and they feel frustrated, uh, career wise because, um, our wages haven't gone up real, real working wages haven't gone up in about 30 years, but around the world, that's not the case. And around the world, hundreds of millions of people in that 30 year interval have moved into the middle class. And that's a gigantic achievement for humanity. So it's on especially even, right? in China. That's exactly what I'm talking about, and India, and uh, Indonesia, and other parts yeah. of South Asia, but also in Latin America. And just to put that in perspective, um, in 1962, when the show came out, the average income in the United States was five thousand five hundred dollars. To, to buy a home, yeah. a new a new house cost twelve thousand five hundred dollars. Right. So it was like two, two and a half times your annual average annual salary, which is, and today it's 20 times that's your average right. annual salary. Yeah. Right. A new, a new car costs $3,000. You could import a car for about $1,500. 
A gallon yeah. of gas cost 28 cents in 1962. So, oh my goodness. So no wonder people weren't stressing out about income and stressing out about work and so forth. You know, if you wrote that story today, you'd have to take into account the fact that people are struggling to make ends meet, that costs yeah. are high, you know, in, in, income hasn't grown and so forth. At well, the great, this ones. is the great American dream. You know, back in those days, if as long as you worked hard, you could have the the white picket fence, the you know the four four bedroom home, the new car every couple of years, the dishwasher and the appliances and things like that, because the wages matched the consumption, and that, that was you know this massive middle class growth that happened in the U.S. But of course, in the 1980s, um, you know, uh, late 70s and 1980s, we had uh, both Thatcher and Reagan, um, ha- you know, really put a lot of pressure on the trade union movement, collective mm-hmm. bargaining. Um, then we had the deregulation of the financial services market. All of that led to, as you said, that stagnant wage growth. But yeah. in China, we haven't, you know, we've seen that wage growth it, it, it incredibly improve. They've eliminated extreme poverty over the last 20 years entirely in China, Um, whereas now in the US, um, the number of people living below the poverty line uh, line has climbed. So there's more net people in the United States in terms of pure numbers living below the poverty line today in the US than there are in Mexico. So, you know, that's an effect of the sort of stagnant wage growth. But, you know, and it's, you know, that's why we're so sensitive to this inflation right now is that, that, that that margin of error you know, or that mar- that buffer in between salary and and a and a you know a healthy existence is so thin these days because of um, you know stagnant wage growth, um, and that's a problem of wealth distribution. And that that's again, right. as you mentioned, you know this is a, a problem really wasn't discussed, but it was hinted at in in the Jetsons, and it's something that in as we get more and more automation, we're going to have to pay a lot more philosophical attention to how do we guarantee that distribution of wealth? Because the yeah. US is the most prosperous economy the world has ever seen, which belies the question, why is it that healthcare outcomes are so poor in the country? You know, and you know, why don't we have, you know, why doesn't everyone have access to, you know, phenomenal education and so forth? Yeah. You know, yeah, you yeah. would think that the wealthiest country in the world could provide those basic core needs to, uh, to to the whole of society. Well, Brett, it's a choice, right? It's a decision. Right. And as you point out, we've got 50 years of neoliberal economics, the sort of Milton Friedman School and the Chicago School of Economics um, that preaches extreme distribution of wealth, you know, where you've got uh, the, the great deal of wealth going to a very small number of people. That concentration of wealth upsets the balance. It, also, it actually ultimately upsets a democracy. It makes it very difficult for a democracy I to function. Agree. Uh, actually, the reasons- did they ever have voting? Did they ever show voting on the Jetsons? No, they did not. No, no. In fact, they don't show any civil society or government, as far as I can tell. So it's interesting. It's all Those automated. Just- They weren't issues at the time because people took that stuff for granted. It wasn't dramatically interesting. Where today, if you think about a show like Game of Thrones, it's all about political struggle and, you know, kind of the bloodthirsty cut and thrust of how to get how to get to the throne That's the most popular TV show in history. Um, and, and it's, you know, gory, uh, it's, it's completely violent, but it's all yeah, about a struggle for the top. It's a struggle for the crown, right? Uh, you wouldn't have told a story like that in 1962 because that just wasn't a theme. It wasn't a mainstream theme. I think that's one thing that we need to get back to, you know, if you think about the sixties, you know, particularly with the space race, the atomic age and so forth, it was all about the potential of humanity. That's why Jetsons as a cartoon in many ways existed It is because we were thinking about the potential of the future and what it could do for humanity. Yeah, that's uh, right. But 
you know, the super competitive environment, particularly particularly post the oil crisis years, you know, in the 70s, has produced this heightened view of competition. We compete on an individual level for salary. We can compete, we can compete company versus company for, for clients, for revenue, for market share. We compete nation against nation for global trade and so forth. But in the 60s, it was really about competing for humanity, for the future of humanity. Yeah. Um, and yes, there was still competition, but it was secondary to advancing the human species. Well, and the I competition, think hopefully... The competition that we had at the time was the Cold War, right? So there was right. the communist yes. system, which was expanding. Let's, let's not forget, in the 1960s... The Marxist-Leninist way, yes. They were on a path to global revolution, right? All the colonial countries in Africa for instance, and in Latin America, were subject to uh, to infiltration and manipulation by Soviets. So you had that as a threat. And actually, you know, we don't talk about this much. And in the United States, we're not supposed to talk about it, I guess. But um, the United States was a lot more fair to workers when the Soviet Union existed. And as yes. soon as the Soviet Union went out of existence in 1990, when you know when the Cold, when yep. the Cold War ended. Lo and behold, we have this surge of inequality and suddenly workers are being treated poorly. Why is that the case? Gee, let's think about that for a second. So there was a real competition of ideas and it was lively in the 1960s, but the competition of ideas was between Western style capitalism and Soviet style socialism, right? Or, or communism, if you will. And, um, and that competition of ideas forced governments around the world to think about fairness and equality and treating labor right, making things accessible, making education accessible. Don't forget, in the Kennedy years, they opened up a whole bunch of colleges, uh, trade schools. Right. Uh, the idea was to educate workers and the government invested resources. The government didn't, it wasn't run on the same basis that we run the government today, this kind of like um, economic measurement of ROI and every single decision, a very short-term perspective. Instead, they were focused on the long-term values and because- uh, and create, you know, we hear, heard a lot more talk about the American way of life yes, as a defense right. against the communist movement. And everybody um, in the country can unify today, around that. Right. But today right. we don't hear talk about the way of life. We, You know, we hear about making America great again, but the focus isn't on producing a way of life that everyone's comfortable with necessarily. It's getting back to traditional values when, in fact, you know, that that way of life that everybody could prosper, that everybody could be um, prosperous, have a new car every few years, have a roof over their head, have, you know, um, you know, the roast dinner every Sunday, um, you know, the TV where they could, in, you know, have that leisure time and entertainment and the kids could be out playing sports on the weekend and so forth. That way of life that was really valued, we've lost a lot of that. You know, and that's something that I think if we are going to have highly technical societies like the Jetsons, it's got to be based on bringing that sort of quality of life to every corner of humanity rather than, you know, just a select few who own the assets and the wealth, uh, you know, that power the, the future of, you know, highly autonomous societies. What a manifesto, what, what, thought, what a high what, note. And yeah, what, what thought do you think we should leave leave it on apart from that? I like that vision you just shared with us. All right. I like that vision just fine. No, listen, it's it's a really it's a stirring vision, right? We took a fairly trivial thing, a tr fairly trivial topic today, uh, a cartoon show that was about the about 100 years in the future. That's now aging and it is definitely showing its age. Uh, yeah. With all of its built-in biases and all the people in the story who are erased out of the narrative, uh, so some of that stuff did not age well. Some of the technological forecasts, well, those were pretty spot on. Some were not. Yeah. 
Um, but as you can see, these narratives that we tell ourselves can have a profound in, impact, and sometimes they're a reflection of the society around them. And so for people who are listening today, I think let's take that away from it. Uh, say like, gee, what stories are we telling ourselves today about the world we live in and the future that we're about to build? Where is the vision of progress? And is it a vision of shared progress? Is it an equal vision of progress? So I like the note you just shared with us. I think that's a Good. powerful manifesto. Well, you know, um, if you like this episode, you know what to do. You can go and uh, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Uh, you can uh, tweet us out. You know, um, Robin and I, you know, we don't do this type of episode every week. Let us know what you think. You know, would you like us to have more discussions on the future like this? Of course, we can bring uh, guests in. Obviously, we focus on the futurists that are building the world of tomorrow, but sometimes it's good to get into the weeds and talk about whether the future is going to be good or bad and how we're going to get to a future that's desirable and positive for everybody. So that's what we uh, we thought we'd do with the Jetsons today. Let us know what you think about it. Um, don't forget to, as I say, you know, leave us a review. And um, thanks to our production team, to Kevin Hirschen, to uh, Elizabeth Severance, um, you know, Sil Sylvie and uh, Carlo, who help us you know, put the show together each week and thank you all for listening as well. Um, we really enjoy being on this show, Robert, Robert and I, and uh, we enjoy uh, the fact that you guys find it uh, intriguing and interesting as well. But you know what we're going to say next, right? We will, uh, we'll be back next week. We will see, we'll you, see you in the in, future. In the future. Well, that's it for the futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.